morning, church. Let's begin our time in the Word by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a full time of worship we have already enjoyed this morning. We have celebrated baptism as we've witnessed these two sisters proclaiming their faith in Christ. We have sung your praises, noting that there is nothing that justifies us before you but the blood of Christ. We have celebrated our union with you and with one another in the Lord's Supper. And we now open your word together. What a wonderful time. And we, we pray, Lord, that as we, as we do this, as we open your word, that you would continue to minister to us as we worship you. That you would grant us to be aware of the gravity of the things that we do, even as we have we have felt the gravity of, of baptism and the gravity of, of our union with you in the Lord's Supper, that we, would, that we would understand the gravity of what we do as we open your word and as we hear from you. That we would recognize, Father, that we are not opening just another book and that we are not just hearing another form of wisdom similar to that of the world, but rather we are hearing from you. We are hearing truth. And we, pr we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and hearts to understand it, to embrace it, to believe it, to be emboldened by it, to be eager to live it and to proclaim it to the world pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 23. As we begin, I'd like to just read a few verses, verses 20 through 23, the, the last few verses. So if, if, you're, if you found your place there, if you would, please stand with me and we'll, we'll read just those last few, beginning in verse 20, Mark 7, beginning in verse 20. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, Pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You may be you may be seated. 
according to Romans chapter 1, verse 17 and following. Every man, even, even the man who does not know the Lord, every man knows that there is a God. And he knows that God is worthy of worship. He knows that he is without excuse for not worshiping God. And he knows that his sin brings him under judgment. He knows this. Every man knows this. Romans chapter 2 teaches that even the person who has not been taught the law of God, that person has the law of God written on his heart in the form of his conscience. And his conscience condemns him before God. Out of desperation to justify himself, that is to convince himself and others and ultimately God, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm just fine. Out of desperation to justify himself, man seeks to identify the source of his evil, seeks to identify the source of his evil outside of himself rather than at the core of his being. And we're going to see the the Jews do that in this passage this morning. We have seen various philosophers and psychologists do it throughout the centuries. The 18th century Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, seeking to make sense of his own evil deeds, he determined that if he had just been left to himself, then he would have only ever acted in a virtuous fashion, but it was society that corrupted him and led him to do evil things. Of course, the human heart is only eager to accept that kind of thinking, and that philosophy is is assumed in our culture. Man is inherently good, our culture believes. Man is corrupted by systems corrupted by society, corrupted by his or her upbringing. That kind of thinking has ramifications for our understanding of culpability. So the person who does evil, according to our culture, the person who does evil, he, he did do that act, but his punishment should be mitigated by the reality that he is simply the product of his experiences. He is... A victim of circumstance. He's molded by his environment. And this kind of thinking that evil works its way into a person from outside, that also has ramifications for the remedy as well. So when we, we explain our actions and the actions of other people, primi- primarily in terms of nurture rather than nature, that is, what has happened to us rather than what we are, well, then we think that the way to fix the problem is to correct the environment in which we live. So we eliminate those external ingredients that cause people to be and to do evil. And to our lost culture, the heart of man is this soft ball of clay that is naturally inclined toward good. It's forces from outside that shape that heart into something evil. As we live and move in this culture, it can be quite easy for us to acquiesce to the spirit of the age and to either adopt that same thinking or 
to become embarrassed that we believe otherwise. But the Holy Spirit does not seem to be embarrassed as He presents the human heart not as a receptacle but as a fountain. Proverbs 4.23 reads, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows springs of life. In other words, stuff flows from your heart. Your heart does not catch things, but it sends things out, so says the Word of God. We are conceived with hearts far from God, hearts that desire to rebel, hearts that want to go their own way, hearts that give rise to rebellious acts. And those acts separate us from God and doom us to eternal judgment. Man does not need to be rescued from his environment. He needs to be rescued from his own heart. And it is absolutely crucial that we embrace this truth in our own thinking and communicate it with boldness and love both in the church and in the culture because a misdiagnosis of man's problem will inevitably lead to a missed cure. The passage here in Mark 7 shows the scribes and Pharisees seeking to locate their problem outside themselves. And Jesus boldly corrects their thinking. And perhaps He corrects ours. Verses 1 through 5 set the stage for us. So let's get a feel for where this is headed. Verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to Him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now these scribes were from Jerusalem. We've seen them before back in chapter 3. They likely came down to see just how bad things were getting with Jesus, how popular He was getting, how much He was threatening their power. Perhaps they'd come to, to trip Him up and condemn Him, and it appears that they think they have found something. Jesus' disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. At the orphan care pajama party a few weeks ago, just prior to eating pizza together, we gathered all the kids around to ask the Lord to bless our food. And, and I said to the kids, what do we do before we eat? And I was expecting all of them to say, we pray. Some of them did say that, but one voice rang out above all the others saying, sanitize. That, that is what the COVID era will do. Now, many of us, many of us wouldn't dare eat a thing, especially these days, without washing our hands. But it's for health reasons, right? Well, that was not on the radar in first century Palestine. Unsanitary conditions, that's, that was not even a thing. It wasn't a concept for them. This was all about ritual uncleanness. God is holy, can't be in the presence of sin. And the ritual washings prescribed in the Old Testament were intended 
to picture the holiness required in order to enjoy God's presence. To be defiled or unclean pictured the sinfulness that made one unacceptable to God and therefore separated from Him. These washings were prescribed for for certain occasions. For example, we read in Leviticus chapter 22 that the priests were to ceremonially wash before eating the sacrifices. You read also in Leviticus chapter 7 that laypersons had to wash before eating their portion of fellowship offerings. But the law of Moses did not prescribe washing every time that anyone ate anything. However, the tradition of the elders did require that. You see, that they missed the point of the picture of ritual cleanness. They missed that what God really wants of man is holiness from the inside out. They thought, well, He just wants, he just wants our skin to be clean. And so they surmised, if it pleases God for the priests to wash at these particular times, it must please God even more to wash all the time. And so it was their own rule to wash in a particular way before eating all the time. And Mark notes that they had a lot of these traditions that they observed. And these traditions were elevated by them to the status of law alongside, and we might say above, the law of God. So to these Jewish leaders, to eat with unwashed hands made one unacceptable to God. So for Jesus' disciples to do this reflected poorly on Jesus in their minds because as their master, He was responsible for everything that they did. So, verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? See, they are concerned with externals. They're concerned with unclean hands. Jesus is concerned with the heart. And most of what follows from verse 6 through 23 is Jesus exposing the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees and exposing the heart of of the matter of defilement. What is it that really causes defilement? What is it that really separates man from God? Jesus will say in verse 6, their hearts are far from me. That's what causes defilement. That is what separates us from God. The heart of the matter of of defilement, the heart of what separates us from God is the heart. This is not a condition unique to first century scribes and Pharisees. We are all conceived with hearts far from God. The natural condition of man is captured well in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 where we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A major theme of the Bible and the theme of this narrative in Mark is that the greatest danger to man is not from without, but from within. This passage is intended to create in us a longing for that condition to be fixed. Who can fix this problem of the heart? That's what we're intended to ask. So we're going to note four truths as we continue through the text, four truths regarding hearts far from God. 
four truths regarding hearts far from God. And the first is that hearts far from God tend toward hypocrisy. Hearts far from God tend toward hypocrisy. Verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If you're looking for fear of man, you will not find it in Jesus. Some of us are so timid when speaking the truth in this culture. We need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is boldness, the epitome of boldness. Because if you know the book of Isaiah, you know he's writing to his own culture, to people who have strayed from the Lord into idolatry. For Jesus to say this to the scribes and Pharisees, Mark doesn't, he does not mention that there's a gasp in the people listening to this, but I imagine that there were gasps as he said this. It's unbelievable that Jesus would say this to the scribes and Pharisees. Well did Isaiah prophesy, not of your forefathers, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, you hypocrites. Now in Jesus' day, a hypocrite was an actor, just an actor. They, they literally wore masks on a stage. They pretended to be something that they weren't. And so over the years, a hypocrite came to be used as a literal word for us. This is somebody who pretends to be something that they were not. In Jesus' day, a hypocrite was an actor. He is using the term metaphorically. They aren't literally actors, but they pretend to be something that they aren't. They pretend to be holy, pious, faithful to God. They outwardly make a show of honoring God. They honor me with their lips, Isaiah says. And Jesus applies it to the scribes and Pharisees. They honor me with their lips, but that is not reflective of who they are. Jesus says their heart is far from me. Now in the Bible, the heart is the real you. It's who you are at your core. It's where your thoughts originate, it's where your will resides, where your motives come from, where your convictions and your commitments are rooted. Your heart is who you are. The scribes and the Pharisees at their deepest core are far from God. They pretend to be close. They've got this mask on that shows, hey, we're close to God, we love God, but they are far from Him. The heart far from God will tend to be putting on a show of piety, but it will not represent who they are at their core. can't be because they are actually far from God. Even the so-called non-religious person does this. The person in this culture, in our culture, who claims not to believe in God, their God-given conscience accuses them. Remember chapter 2 of, of, of Romans that I, I referenced earlier. Their God-given conscience accuses them, tells them they're far from God, that they're culpable for their sin. So they cultivate their own brand of outward morality. And it's all, it is all designed to justify self, to say to self, to say to others, to say ultimately to God, there's nothing wrong with me. The problem is outside of me. I'm fine. The truth is, they're not fine. Their heart is far from God. They are pretending 
They are pretenders. They are hypocrites. They're saying one thing outwardly, the inward truth is completely different. And this, this hypocrisy, this pretending, it necessitates a marginalizing of the Word of God because God's Word says just the opposite. God's Word says you're not fine. There's something dead wrong with you. The problem lies right at your very core. And so what comes next in, in the text is not distinct from hypocrisy, but flows from it. So the second truth that we see about the heart that's far from God is that it desires to make void the Word of God. The heart far from God desires to make void the Word of God. Let's start at verse 7 again. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, there are many ways to make void the Word of God. The scribes and Pharisees, their favorite way was to make their own rules and elevate them above the law of God. Now, Isaiah says here, and Jesus quotes him applying it to the scribes and Pharisees, in, in vain do they worship me. In vain, meaning to no end. Your worship of me is meaningless because your heart is actually far from me. And it's evidenced by the fact that you elevate your commandments above mine. That's Isaiah. And Jesus then makes clear how he believes that the scribes and Pharisees exemplify this. He shows how they exemplify this in verse 8. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so he's swinging back around and showing how this thing of, of washing the hands, this tradition of men has become more significant to them than obeying the commandment of God. It is not only easier to keep our own rules than to obey God's, it's more desirable to the heart of the person who is far from God. The heart far from God doesn't love God, loves self. I don't want to do what God says. I prefer my own rules. I want to do what I say. And if I can shroud obedience to what I want to do, I can shroud that in a form of outward righteousness. Well, then I can look good while disobeying God. That's what the Pharisees loved to do, and that's what many in our culture love to do. I can look righteous. I can look like a good person while minimizing the Word of God. Like I went on two accounts. Jesus goes on to give an example. Verse 9, and he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So they, they had a tradition that you could devote a portion of your assets to God. They would declare it Corban. That means devoted to God. And it was then no longer theirs to do with as they pleased. And this was their tradition. And had a great veneer of godliness to it. I'm giving this stuff to God and now it's not mine anymore. But that tradition came into conflict with a command of God to honor father and mother. Because they would say, oh, I'm giving this stuff to God. But then they would say, sorry, mom and dad, I can't take care of you anymore. Sorry, give all that stuff to God. 
And they, then they would justify not taking care of their parents. And in that way, they have made themselves look holy, outwardly holy, while relieving themselves of an unwanted obligation to God. And to the heart far from God was a great deal. Because I look super spiritual, but I don't have to take care of my parents. I don't have to do what God tells me to do. Bottom line, they voided the Word of God for their own traditions and rules. Thus, their outward worship was vanity. It was a charade. It wasn't real. Their hearts were far from God as demonstrated by their eagerness to relieve themselves of obligation to obey God. The Word of God makes very clear claims on us. It says that God is God. We are not. It convicts us of sin. Calls us to repentance, calls us to worship God and God alone. The heart far from God doesn't want any of that because it hates God. And so it seeks in every way possible to make void the word of God so as to perpetuate the lie, I'm fine. I'm not the problem. If there is a problem, it's outside of me. And these Jewish elites... They did that. They minimized the, the Word of God by substituting their own rules in the place of God's. Now, there are many other ways that man seeks to minimize or make void the Word of God. We can just simply dismiss the Word of God. And you could hear people doing this in our culture all the time. Perhaps some of us have done it in the past. Maybe some of us are doing it right now. We say things like, well, the Bible is ju it's just a human book. It's got errors in it. Or it will say things like, th there are a lot of holy books out there. There's, there's the Book of Mormon, there's the Quran, there's this, there's that. I mean, how do we know that the Bible is the true one? And by that, we just brush it aside. Those who do believe that the Bible is the Word of God have other ways of making void the Word of God. One is to just interpret it in a self-serving fashion. We'll say things like, oh, yes, I, I know that's what it says, but that's your interpretation. I've found someone who interprets it the way that I do. And the, the, the clear reading of the text may be bearing down on our conscience, but we say, no, I don't like that, and we twist the text up like a pretzel so as to dismiss what's written. We make void the Word of God. Another way that we may, we may make void the Word of God is to, to make our own self-serving substitutions for faithfulness that, in a sense, take our minds off of what is required of us. And as I say that, I think of, I think of Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A way that some dismiss the Word of God, make void the Word of God, is to busy themselves with, with ancillary good deeds, so-called good deeds, which convince ourselves and others 
that we're faithful when in reality we are making room for sin, ignoring the Word of God in significant ways. We do it intentionally. So by these, by these things, we can pretend to be morally upright, good people, while saying no to God. And if we were being honest, we would just say, I don't want to be told what to do. Hearts far from God seek to make void the Word of God. Third truth about hearts far from God is that they churn out defilement. They churn out defilement. Beginning in verse 14, the Lord begins to correct the scribes and Pharisees and make clear what they've obscured with their traditions. So, so look at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now, as has been the case before, back in chapter 4, the disciples come to Jesus privately when they don't understand something. And in the following verses, Jesus is going to explain to the disciples what at this point is obscure to them. Okay, So verse 18, he begins to dis, dis, explain to them what he's just said. Verse 18, he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, once again, we find the disciples struggling to understand. And again, this is a theme. Do, do you lack understanding? Meaning, do, do you lack understanding like the scribes and Pharisees? Now, with, with this, Jesus understands, uh, indicates a couple of things. First of all, they should know better. But, but second, that he gives them further insight indicates that they are on the inside. So they should know better, and yet Jesus is patient with them. They're on the inside. He's, he's, he's patient with them. So why don't these things that go into a person defile that person? When you eat with unwashed hands, why, why doesn't that defile you? Jesus says, those things don't go into your heart. It has, it has no effect on, on who you are at your core. Now, our, our ESV sanitizes verse 19 to some, to some extent. It more literally says, look, it doesn't enter your heart, but it goes into your stomach and goes out into the toilet. is a kind of graphic way to, to express the point. Look, this is ridiculous to think that, that eating with unwashed hands does anything to who you are. You just it, you, you flush it. The real problem is much deeper. He calls attention again to the heart. The heart is what matters. That unclean thing doesn't go into the heart. Continuing verse 20, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, Pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now here in verse 20, in 20 through 23, we have these bookends on, on these verses that, that give us the main idea. So, so verse 
20, what comes out of a person defiles him. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile him. Those two, two verses are somewhat synonymous and they tell us how to understand what's, what's in between. Look, it's, it's not that turkey sandwich that you, that you ate with unwashed hands. That's not a problem. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be sewage in a few hours, but there is a problem. There is something that defiles you. It's those wicked thoughts. And, and as, he, as he gives this laundry list of serious sins, he starts to wake them up. Oh, yeah, those, are, those things are a big deal. And those things don't come from outside. They come from deep inside of me. Wicked thoughts, sexual sin, thievery. Wanting what belongs to somebody else, dishonesty, pride, all of that defiles you. All of that separates you from God, and it comes from the deepest core of who you are. See, Jesus, He is not at all denying that a person can be defiled, that a person can be unacceptable to God, separated from God. In fact, that's why that's why Jesus took on human flesh and came down here. He came to the earth because that reality exists. Man is separated from God. The question is, where does that defilement come from? And Jesus is saying it comes from the heart. The heart far from God, it churns out evil. And that evil defiles a person. That evil makes the person acceptable to God. Sin does not enter man from the outside. It flows from his heart, the very core of who he is. So breaking man-made rules, that doesn't defile you. A bad upbringing, that does not defile you. Being oppressed by society doesn't defile you. Coming under the influence of, 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 of negative societal factors does not defile you. Sin defiles you, and it comes from your very own heart. Man's problem then is much deeper than the Pharisees and the scribes and Rousseau and modern culture want to accept. It is heart deep. And we must insist on this as we lovingly engage those around us with the truth. Why? Why do we need to insist on this? Because anyone who misses this truth is going to settle for a remedy that is merely external and therefore ineffectual. A remedy that leaves the real problem of the sinful heart untouched. And that, that brings us to the final truth here. Hearts far from God need to be replaced They need to be replaced. Again, Genesis 6.5 reads that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is what moved God to bring the flood upon the earth. Now listen, there is nothing that changed in the nature of man following the flood. Genesis 6.5 is still descriptive of fallen man. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. And the rest of the narrative of the Old Testament testifies to the reality that man's natural state is rebellion against God. 
And it doesn't matter what incentive is put in front of man. It doesn't matter what kind of external factors you introduce to man. You cannot change that reality. For example, Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, just prior to taking the people into the Canaan land, Moses puts in front of the people these tremendous blessings that will come if they just follow God. He also puts in front of them the horrific curses that will happen to them if they rebel against God. In other words, he puts external influences right in front of them. He uses both a carrot and a stick. The prospect of reward and punishment. They have all the incentive in the world to be faithful to God. That's Deuteronomy 28. And in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, Moses predicts that the people are going to rebel anyway. He begins that section by telling them why. Why will they rebel anyway? Why will they rebel even though they have all of these blessings to look forward to and they have all of these curses to turn them away from that rebellion? Why will they rebel anyway? Deuteronomy 29.4 reads this way. To this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And this tells us two things. First of all, their problem is they need a new heart. He does not say, the Lord hasn't changed your heart. He has not given you a heart. They need a new heart. It's the first thing that that verse tells us. And the second is that only Yahweh can do it. Only He can do it. The rest of the Old Testament shows Moses was right. As the people repeatedly rebel against God, they can do nothing else because they have hearts far from God. Their hearts need to be replaced. And the Jews of the Old Testament are a, you might say they are a sample of mankind. We all have hearts that are far from God that need to be replaced. Now let's bring our attention back to the book of Mark. Mark has been putting Jesus in front of us and making the case that He is worthy of faith. And He has shown Jesus repeatedly healing physical diseases, casting out demons while preaching the good news. And Mark is slowly working his way towards showing that these ministries of Jesus are emblematic of His solution to our real problem, which is sin inside of us. And so with this scene, Mark puts our focus on this horrible reality, which is that our greatest problem is not physical illness. Our greatest problem is not demons that can come into us, but that can also be removed from us. Mark is working his way towards showing us that there is something deep inside of us that we cannot deal with, rather what makes us unclean before God, what makes us unacceptable to God, estranged from God, originates from the deepest part of who we are. And we're intended to ask the question, how on earth are we going to be rescued from this? How are we going to be reconciled to God? And Mark wants us to begin connecting some dots. 
Jesus rescues everyone who comes to him in faith. He is the manifestation of all God's salvific will. Pastor John read to us this morning from Ezekiel chapter 36. Let me read to you just three verses from that passage again. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And remember, that Old Testament uncleanness is not an external thing. He's talking about internal holiness. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. All your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus comes to make us clean from the inside out. He gives us these new hearts, hearts that, that do not hate God and one another. These new hearts that love God and love one another. And here's something that's crucial to know. We want to make sure that we understand this is very important. Jesus does not give us new hearts so that we can obey and then earn our place with God. That is not how this works. We need, in order to be with God, we need perfect righteousness. And all of these sins that we've committed in the past, they must be completely paid for. We can do neither one. We need a perfect record of righteousness. And we need the slate completely wiped clean of all our past sins. A new heart that begins right now doesn't do either one of those things. Now, Jesus gives us new hearts. He also takes care of those other two things. He lives a perfect life before God, completely obeying God on our behalf, so that when we repent of our sin and trust in Him, His perfect record of obedience is transferred to our account so that before God the Father, His record of obedience becomes our record of obedience. And by repentance and faith, His death on the cross takes care of, of the guilt of our sin. So our guilt and sin is transferred to His shoulders. He dies for it on the cross. So His death takes care of our guilt. His righteousness is transferred to us before the Father. That is how we are justified before God. And He gives us these new hearts by which we are able to love God and one another. The new heart, it is a gift from God that enables us to, to turn from sin and trust in Christ, not just on day one, but continually as we continue to follow Christ. It enables to love God and one another, not just on day one, but continually until He comes. It enables us to live for God and His glory, not just on day one, but continually and throughout eternity. So what is it that the suffering sinner really needs? Contra to what the world would say, what is it that the suffering person really needs? The person who is being eaten alive by sin, sin that's churned out by his own heart, what does he really need? 
That person needs Jesus. Jesus who gives a new heart. What does society need? Society needs Jesus. And so in our evangelism, in our, in our own sanctification, we need to talk, we need to think in terms of the heart. To the lost person, we need to be clear that the, the problem isn't just the you do. And it, and it is not just what is outside of you that is your problem. It is, it is, it is who you are at your core. And that is terrible news. We need to deliver that terrible news. We need to deliver the terrible news to the lost person that your, your problem is eating you up from the inside out. And the reason that we need to deliver that terrible news is because that terrible news is what mo will move them to embrace the glorious news that there is one who makes all things new, including the human heart. That person is Jesus. Only Jesus, only Jesus is the answer to that worst of all problems. Jesus is bold in this passage. He is not ashamed to go against the grain, to go against all society. The, early in this chapter, it says that the Pharisees and all the Jews believe this. All of them wash their hands before eating anything. Jesus says to all of them, that's nonsense. And we should be bold and loving as we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And part of that good news is saying to the culture, it is not what is outside of us that is the worst problem. It is what's inside of us. It is the human heart. And only Jesus Christ can correct that. Now, in a few minutes, after I pray, we're going to spend a few minutes in, in silence before the Lord. And I would encourage you just to consider in His presence what He would have you to do with these things. For someone that you know who needs to hear these things? Is there some way in which you have acquiesced to the culture? Is there some way in which you have justified your own actions, your own sin, by, by saying to yourself, I only do what I do because of the things that have happened to me? You need to repent of that thinking and accept that, no, it's on your own heart and run to Christ because He is the one who changes hearts. How would the Lord have you to respond to these things? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the magnificence of the gospel, for the beautiful absurdity of it, that you, you would see us in this horrific problem, uh, the problem that is so, so personally offensive to you, and move to remedy it at such great personal cost. We marvel that it's true, and we thank you that it's true. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us to never recover from it, that it will be seared on our hearts and minds. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us in our thinking and our living to be products of the Scriptures, that we would truly have the mind of Christ and not the mind of the culture.
that we would see our own hearts as the, the, the fount of the things that we think and love and do. For that reason, we would continually submit our hearts to the Lord Jesus. That as we engage with other believers and the lost, we would have this truth on our minds. With the lost, we would, we would constantly be, be speaking to the reality that man is not inherently good, but is inherently rebellious against you, and therefore needing a heart transplant that only Christ can provide. And in our interactions with one another, Father, help us to continually point one another to the heart in submission to the Lord Jesus. We ask all of these things in his name.